Hi, I'm Mark Boucher of SpaceQ. Today we're simultaneously publishing our Terranauts podcast here on the SpaceQ channel and the Terranauts channel. We're doing this because some of you might not be familiar with Terranauts yet. In this new episode, host Ian Christie speaks with Gord Rigby and Alan Thompson of MDA about everything you might want to know about the RadarSat program and synthetic aperture radar. Listen in. About three, let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NIO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. So on this show, we have talked to Terranauts who have been involved in some big programs, and especially in the early days of some big programs. But today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk to a couple of Terranauts who have not only been involved in the early days, but have literally spent their career uh, watching and helping a technology through quite literally three generations of going to space. And that technology is RadarSat. And the Terranauts that we're going to talk to are Gord Rigby and Alan Thompson. Gordon Allen, welcome to Terranaut. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Alan, maybe I'll just start with you and get you to uh, introduce yourself. I am Alan Thompson. I work at MDA. I've been working on RadarSat programs. That's imaging the Earth with a satellite, sometimes called SAR, Synthetic Aperture Radar, for uh, almost 30 years. I'm currently the chief engineer on the recently launched RadarSat Constellation mission. And Gord? Yeah, I'm uh, Gord Rigby. Uh, I uh, work currently as the uh, director of operations for our, uh, the MDA geospatial services business, which is really focused on uh, operation and uh, business operations in and around the RadarSat program, uh, RadarSat 2, RCM, and really uh, uh, started with RadarSat 1 um, in 95. I started in this program and working for MDA uh, approximately 20 years ago as well. Okay, so maybe tell us, Gord, tell us a little bit more about the early days. How did you, how did you get into the space program? Was that something that you knew you wanted to do from from uh, an early time, or was it just by accident that you fell into this job? I guess uh, I don't think I I, uh, I uh, came into the job with the uh, getting involved in a space program as my uh, uh, specific goal. I came from a background that is more uh, focused on. Uh, the user side of RadarSat and of uh, Earth observation uh, with a background in geography and physics and geographic information systems and then um, uh, became aware as a, as a user of synthetic aperture radar and of RadarSat um, and through that uh, ended up finding an opportunity to start working for um, the uh, uh, company called RadarSat International, who was uh, tasked with commercializing and distributing and uh, producing all of the products for uh, the RadarSat uh, One at the time, the RadarSat mission. So that's how I started. So, so Alan, maybe I'll ask you the same thing. How did you get involved in the space program? Was this something that had interested you always, or was it? Did you come to it later? 
I guess I was always interested in space, but it wasn't my original career path. I started out as a pure mathematician, and at some point in my life, I think I thought I'd like to try something a little more applied. And so I got a job in software engineering related to processing satellite data. And then I started to get very interested in uh, space in general and satellite imaging specifically. So I started out on the ground segment side of things, processing satellite data. I was working for a company in Toronto in the early 90s uh, prior to RadarSat 1 launch. And so that's how I got into the RadarSat program, RadarSat 1 specifically. Somewhat later, there was an interesting opportunity to come to Vancouver because I knew that MDA had just won the RadarSat 2 program. And I joined MDA to work as an engineer, not just on the ground segment anymore, but also on the spacecraft side and putting it all together end to end to see whether we could build spacecraft to meet certain image quality requirements by combining performance on the ground and performance in space. So I kind of went from mathematician to working on ground segments to working on spacecraft. Right. And I've been here at MDA uh, ever since. Right. Uh, so which one of you wants to take a crack at explaining in, in, in words of two syllables or less what synthetic aperture radar is? That better be Alan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll give it a try. I mean, radar originally was an acronym, radio detection and ranging. So the original purpose of radar was simply to send out signals, record echoes, and detect whether something was there, such as aircraft. A much more ambitious goal is to use radar to send out a radio signal and get the echoes back and not just detect something, but construct a picture or an image right. of, of whatever you're illuminating. So synthetic aperture radar is an advanced technique to get better resolution imaging than conventional radar. Uh, the idea is to make it look like you have a really long antenna. It's a mathematical technique to take a small antenna and synthesize, build up a mathematical bigger antenna to get good resolution. So synthetic aperture radar or SAR is a technique that gives good resolution even from large distances such as space. So if you want to image the Earth from space with radar, these uh, signal processing techniques called synthetic aperture radar are needed. And and is it fair to say that Canada was a bit of a pioneer in, in developing and using synthetic aperture radar? Absolutely. I mean, synthetic aperture radar probably started in the 60s and maybe in certain military areas, but in the civilian use of synthetic aperture radar and specifically from space, Canada truly has been a pioneer. Um, there had been a few other satellites launched prior to in, in the late 80s and early 90s doing SAR. But in 95, when Canada launched RadarSat-1, that was a truly a pioneering spacecraft in that it had a wide variety of imaging modes. Uh, it could do uh, more imaging than any other satellite prior to that time. In particular, it could do very wide swath imaging. So I think, yes, it's fair to say that from a technique point of view, it was pioneering. And then maybe Gord can go into more detail, but later on from an operational point of view and uh, reliable delivery of data to users, it was uh, truly pioneering. Well, and that's, so that is one thing. I mean, RadarSat-1 was not the first or the only synthetic aperture radar, but it was one of the few where the data was actually made available to essentially customers beyond the government that, that paid to have it built, right? Yeah, that's exactly true. Yeah, yeah. and that was really the model for, uh, um, for the business that was at the time RadarSat International was to make that uh, make that uh, opportunity realized and, and uh, determine what is of value to a user community and, and what is of uh, uh, commercial value to that community as well. 
And and that, you know, that doesn't sound very innovative. I would say today in 2020, there's lots of companies that are worried about that. But in, in 1995, that was that was pretty new. Yes, it was. Uh, and, and particularly, uh, you know, the whole Earth observation market was uh, uh, relatively new. Um, people were learning how to generate uh, value and commercial value out of uh, out of data from satellites and, and aircraft. Um, but certainly the synthetic aperture radar market was uh, was really unknown at the time. So um, finger, figuring out, uh, determining where the applications of value were, um, how you could help uh, both to provide commercial value, humanitarian value, um, uh, and where there was a strong fit uh, was a, a key part of the RadarSat international mission at the time. That must have been kind of some fascinating conversations about the art of the possible then. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, being able to be responsive to critical world events um, with uh, with a system that added uh, particular value was uh, was uh, was pretty uh, interesting business to be part of. Yeah. So, in fact, and in fact, you know, enough promise was seen not only in the, the technology for government use, but for commercial use that that the RadarSat 2 was really quite a different model, both as a business as well as a technology from RadarSat 1. I mean, they, they share a name, but they were quite different in their conceptions, right? Yeah, I mean, they're fundamentally two different uh, different models. RadarSat 1 is, uh, is a uh, government, uh, government of Canada-owned mission, um, where the uh, commercialization model was one where um, the, uh, the distribution and the provision of data globally was done through an agreement and a licensing agreement with the government of Canada uh, with royalties and, uh, and uh, cost recovery coming back through that model. Whereas RadarSat 2 is a public-private partnership in its classic sense where uh, MDA invested um, substantial amount of resources into the mission um, and built the mission and provided the, uh, provided the on-orbit capacity and the data to the government of Canada, as we have for many years and continue today. So when did you move from RSI over to MDA in that process? Well, in, uh, uh, when MDA started uh, and, uh, and uh, entered into the RadarSat 2 program, uh, one of the key, uh, key things that MDA recognized was the need to have a commercialization arm and, and a part of the business that uh, could provide uh, the data and information internationally, and so uh, MDA made the decision to uh, to acquire the company that was RadarSat International at the time. Um, so I came with the company at that time. Um, right. Not too long after I started, I came. Uh, it was uh, basically about uh, early two thousand that that uh, that that happened. Yeah. So so really, the process of RadarSat two was as much the invention of a new business as it was the the invention of a new uh, space technology. Yes, it was. Yeah, um, certainly uh, one of its kind, uh, one of a kind uh, in the SAR market at that time. Um, maybe not uh, completely uh, different from some other models that have uh, that were proven to be successful, uh, particularly uh, in the U.S. But uh, but certainly in the SAR market, it was uh, very innovative. That that must have led to some interesting conversations in the early days. Yeah, I mean, the part of the design of Radar, the, the, the building of RadarSat 2 and the preparation for launch included, uh, you know, um, all of the all of the design and the construction and all of the innovation going on then. But, um, you know, taking the knowledge and the experience that we had with uh, with commercializing RadarSat 1 and building a business model uh, that made sense for RadarSat 2, uh, there's a huge amount of business innovation done 
at that time and throughout the mission in order to make it a success. Yeah, it's something that 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 a lot of people, you know, when we think about space, we think about the innovations in the technology. But uh, you know, I I'm actually fond of saying that making stuff work in space is hard. Making money doing it is even a lot harder than that. Um, and that's just something that I think a lot of people don't realize. And and you know, the fact of the matter is that if we can't do these things efficiently and profitably, we probably in the end of the day we can't do them. So so that kind of innovation is essential to where we find ourselves today, for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's also uh, you know it's proven as we've uh, evolved through the mission, as we design the operations and the business operations. We also recognize that um, there's a, a unique capability that comes with the position that we have with Radar Set to. And that we have a direct connection between what our users need um, and how we operate the mission. And, uh, and as we've continued to uh, to operate, um, we we've modified what we've done. We've added new capabilities to the spacecraft while it's been on orbit. We've added new and improved capabilities to the ground segment. We changed what we've done in operations in order to satisfy very specific user needs, and in order to be able to. Uh, capitalize on a uh, commercial market opportunity or a government user opportunity uh, where they exist. So, right. uh, that, that's part of the overall program innovation that's been really important with Raider Set 2. Yeah. So, so Alan, turning more to the, the technical innovation, uh, in, in what ways was Radar Sat 2 uh, an upgrade, um, a, a new generation beyond Radar Sat 1? Yeah, Radar Sat 2 was a truly exciting program, as you've already remarked from the business point of view, but, but I would say from my point of view, even more so from the engineering point of view. Um, I joined uh, MDA 99 to work on Radar Sat 2, and it was a really incredible time. It was the first space program that... MDA had done. Um, it involved assembling a team of incredible people, um, both from MDA and, and frankly, all over the world. Um, the program, from an engineering point of view, was innovative because it added a huge number of capabilities over Radar Set 2. The spacecraft was really state of the art, in so many ways, still is state of the art. Um, it had much higher resolution capabilities than Radar Set 1. It was the first radar, I believe, on orbit with all the multipolar metric capabilities, which enormously help in classifying things that you're imaging. So rather than just getting a what some people think of as a black and white image showing how much radar energy comes back when you transmit radar, it uh, would, would show that information in multiple channels. So you'd get colored images, if you like, allowing uh, classification at a much uh, better level. It was also a much more agile spacecraft. You could turn it right and left, so you could image to one side or the other side, uh, allowing much more access to imaging than Radar Set 1. Um, so just in almost all respects, it was state-of-the-art for the time. And to, just to sort of show what a leading-edge technology it was, you know, it's been in orbit for, what is it, 12 years now, and it's performing enormously mm. well. And as Gord said, we designed into it the ability to reprogram it and upgrade it. So we've actually been adding new capabilities all the way up until now, and there are plans to add more. So uh, it was a privilege to be part of such an innovative program. Yeah, so so uh, so for people who don't know, RadarSat One uh, is not no longer operating, uh, but RadarSat Two, um, uh, you know, is in its healthy uh, middle age. I guess we could call it twelve years in. Uh, how long was it supposed to operate when it launched? Well, so I mean, w w when you launch these things, you have engineering requirements, but often you hope to exceed them. So just to put it in perspective, yeah. RadarSat One had a requirement for five years, and it lasted seventeen years. So that was a 
truly long-lasting mission. Radarsat 2 had an engineering requirement for a seven-year design life. We all, of course, hoped it would last much longer, and it's uh, doing incredibly well. It's functioning for 12 years and in excellent health. So it doesn't really have any life-limiting items that are causing any belief that it'll end anytime soon. So I think your comment of healthy middle age is a, is a good one. I'll just uh, add one more, uh, one more uh, bit of color to that, Radarsat 2. Uh is uh, we, one of the innovations that we've done is to operate the spacecraft with a much uh, tighter orbital constraint in order to facilitate some applications, particularly uh, better application utilization, particularly in the areas of interferometry. Um, uh, so we, we do a lot of uh, a lot more um, fuel burns or uh, that uh, that's a common occurrence on the mm-hmm. spacecraft in order to main, in order to maintain that tight orbit. However, um, we have ample fuel. Uh, to continue that for many, many, many years. Uh, the uh, the launch uh, that we had with Radarsat 2 was excellent, and our fuel consumption, our fuel efficiency has been uh, been uh, been excellent. And and so one of the key consumable items being fuel is uh, is not a uh, a life limiting concern whatsoever for the mission. But now uh, Radarsat 2 has been joined on orbit by the third generation, the new kid on the block, uh, which is the Radarsat Constellation mission. And Alan, you've had a fairly central role in that really since the beginning. Yeah, um, I had the privilege of working on it from the very beginning. So, you know, MDA and the government had the foresight to start looking at studies for the next missions after Radarsat 2 prior to the Radarsat 2 launch. So sometime around 2004, we had some small studies getting going, and I was uh, heavily involved with those. And it was a good time because funding came together and MDA and and the government decided to pursue this. And so it grew from a small study into a sort of bigger study, concept study, and then into a program with a preliminary design and a detailed design and eventually building spacecraft. So it went from a study with maybe three people at the very beginning um, into a major procurement with hundreds of engineers working all across Canada. Right. And that, that must have been quite the 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 uh, the moment when when you realized that your little office of three was now suddenly spread across the entire country at about six different sites uh, must have been busy times for you trying to keep all of those people coordinated. Well, certainly it was busy times, um, and it, of course it wasn't just me. We had an excellent team, um, but keeping it coordinated and when you're sort of in the thick of it at the what we call the prime system engineering role, which basically means keep it all on track and going in the right direction. Yes, you have to coordinate with subcontractors building pieces. You have to coordinate with customers that want things in one way, and maybe sometimes it's hard to give what they want. So a lot of the job is trying to to, uh, find out from customers what they want, find out from engineers what they can build, and do one's best to keep as many people happy as possible, but a lot of the time being caught in the middle. Well, it's an interesting job. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the problem is you're always dealing with people who know more about the topic they want to talk about than you do, but a whole lot less about the whole problem than you do. And and trying to reconcile those two things leads to some pretty interesting conversations. Yeah, at a bit of a personal level, um, that was kind of the change in my career. I mean, I like most engineers, would have started out as a bit of a specialist, and my area was how do you take raw radar data and transform it into nice images. So I was a bit of a specialist, hopefully knowing quite a bit about a small area. 
But when, when you run one of these big programs, and, and not to say I was running it, but I was the chief engineer on it. So when you're technically responsible for one of these big programs, you quickly learn that you can't know everything. And so I end up thinking that I know a little bit about quite a few things, but not a lot about any one thing. So yeah, you, it, it's a difference right. between specialist and generalist. And frankly, it was a really rewarding thing to do to, uh, again, at a personal level, one of the most rewarding things about working on such a program was learning so much about a lot of different things. Uh, I, I think it's one of the special things about it, it's true of any large engineering project, but but space is a really good exemplar of that, that you absolutely have to have the people who are the world experts in the thing that they're the world expert in. But but you also absolutely have to have the person who knows enough to keep all of those things going in the right direction, because because it's always an exercise in compromise. And and if you don't find those right compromises, you just don't get to space. So the, the guys who know they're right. Um, really need the people who know what everybody else needs to, so that we can all get together and make something that works at the end. Well, you say it very well. I, I absolutely agree. Um, getting to space is hard and you need a greatly varied team of people. You need serious expertise in small yeah. areas. You need generalists who can see the big picture and you need to somehow form a cohesive team and work all in the same direction. It's quite a challenge. So talking about getting to space... Uh, where were you when 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 you launched oh, RC? Uh, yes, I had the privilege of being at the Mission Control, which was at the Canadian Space Agency in Montreal, on the South Shore in Montreal. And it, and you know, some people say, why weren't you at launch? And I, my answer to that is, the real action is at Mission Control. And and in yeah. fact, that was an incredible day. Yeah, so this is a day when literally 15 years of your life is getting strapped to a bomb with a hole in one end and fired into orbit. Um, What's what's that like standing in mission control? Yeah, it, it, it's certainly stressful. Um, and the days leading up to it were very stressful because you you, you have to be sure you're ready to launch. And, and we even had some crazy experiences where mm. we, we had some worries about potential design issues and we had to resolve that they were okay. So we were working somewhat feverishly on some analysis right up to launch. Uh, were we ready to launch? And then on the day, you go around and everybody, you, you poll everybody, you know, are, are we go for launch? And then you give the go for launch and uh, you hand control over to SpaceX and, and they launch. And at that point, you're just watching the screen. And uh, actually what happens is you're in the mission control room and Something like, I've forgotten the timeline now, but something like 15 minutes after launch, we're expecting the first contact with the first spacecraft. And so, you know, a minute or so before that, there's just a dead silence in the room and everybody's just waiting to get that first contact. Um, And it's not exact for a variety of reasons. So you're not quite sure to the second when it's going to come. But uh, I don't know how much detail you want here, but but just to briefly say, um, we didn't get that contact quite on time. And it was because... And so, you know, you're sitting there thinking what's happened and a configuration sure. problem in one of our ground stations uh, in the north, in the north actually. Right. And we uh, resolved that in real time. And a couple minutes later than expected, yep. we got the first signal from the first satellite. A couple minutes later and a few exactly. pounds lighter, yeah. probably. Yeah, that's... Uh... So, so we didn't. We you mentioned it quickly, but we we glossed over the fact that the whole point of radar sat constellation is that it's more than one satellite as well. Absolutely, right? um, you know. The history of this radar program in Canada is operational use of radar data and reliable delivery of data to end users. And that was done extremely well with RadarSat 1 and RadarSat 2, and it still is done extremely well with RadarSat 2. There are some applications that want more frequent coverage than can be 
delivered by one satellite. So the main main uh-huh. sort of difference between what RCM or the Radar Side Constellation mission compared to Radar Side Two is that, as you just said, it's three spacecraft, and that enables um, certain applications that want much more frequent coverage, such as the Department of National Defense, which would like us to look at maritime areas off the coast of Canada every day, and for that right. we, we need the three right. spacecraft. But it also means that you got three spacecraft that have to work in order for the mission Absolutely. to be successful. So that, if you want, if we're going back to that first day, we SpaceX gave us a beautiful launch, and they pushed off each of these spacecraft one at a time. And you're waiting to talk to each one only one at a time. It was by design. So, and you can only talk to the spacecraft when it passes over a ground station. So all three are drifting in space, and you made a decision to talk to number one as it passed over the first ground station, number two over the second, and number three over the third. So over a period of about an hour, you find out, are these spacecraft alive? And sure enough, they were. Wow. So that and then uh, and then later on, you, you finally start collecting your first data and find out whether or not you really have a working yeah, and that mission. That is, in fact, quite a long timeline. We have a week of what we call LEOP, launch and early operations, where with shift work, you have two shifts yeah. and you're working 24 seven to get the spacecraft deployed. You have to do things like deploy the antennas, um, check out units on the bus. <clears throat> So for about a week, you're just yeah. making sure the spacecraft is working, but you don't get any actual images. After that, you do something called commissioning right. where you turn the what we call the payload. You turn the radar on, and then, then and only then do you start to get real signal data down, radar data that you need to turn into images. So a couple of weeks after launch, I think it was actually July 4th, we got our first image. And, and then the funny thing is, and then the people who've been working on it for 15 years to make it work – basically handed the keys over to people who are going to operate it and generate the data for people like Gord. Uh, and it's, it's actually no longer your baby anymore. Absolutely. No, it's not quite, you know, get the first image on July 4th. I have to confess the first image didn't look that good. And that was kind of to be expected. There were a lot of adjustments and tuning to be done. So I spent uh, July till November with the commissioning team. This is pre- before routine operations where you just, check everything out and adjust all the image quality and get it working nicely. But you're right. At some point, you hand it over. You hand the keys over. That happened in late November. And you hand it over to the routine ops team and the spacecraft go off and do their job. I guess guess one other one uh, on the line code as well, though, as as you're going through that process, one of the things that makes that handover successful is, uh, is the involvement. We've got an operations team that is flying and operating the system right now. Um, and uh, and that team was heavily involved in the uh, in the operational design and uh, and through that LEOP and commissioning phase that uh, Alan described. So, um, you know, and that's really sure. one of the things that makes that operation successful is is um, having that integrated team as you're going through those really, uh, really difficult phases. Um, and uh, and uh, so it's not quite just a uh, here's your shiny new car. Yes. <laughs> figuring out how you drive no, it. But, uh, no, yeah. no, no. But but it does happen. It's an interesting it's an interesting moment in the life of a Terranaut to uh, to to see it it get to space and realize it belongs to somebody else now. Um, you know yeah. that is a moment. Um, but this is you know this has been a fascinating conversation, guys, to talk about about watching a technology for thirty years and all of the the evolution that it's taken and and uh, and you know and and how uh, you know between the two of you and a lot of other people we've uh, we you've kept. Uh, 
Canada at the forefront of this technology. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us about it on Terranon. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Yeah, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at spaceq.ca. We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.